Ezekiel chapter 36. Two weeks ago, we started talking about uh, the puzzle of pain. We had an introductory message, and then last week, I spoke about uh, pain and growth, that after we've been born again, the Lord expects us to grow, that is, to mature uh, spiritually. And uh, in order to do that, God uses pain in order to effect growth. But pain also comes into play in regards to some other things. And tonight, we're going to consider pain and the matter of obedience. And if there is anything clear in the Bible, it's that God expects His people to obey Him. In Ezekiel chapter 36, the Lord is dealing with a nation that had rebelled against Him a nation that in spite of all of his blessings had turned their back on him. And and the saddest thing about all of it is the fact that uh, they had shamed his name before the heathen. And even whenever he dispersed them into the other nations, he scattered them as as an act of punishment because of their sin. Even there, they brought shame and reproach upon the name of Jehovah. Now, keep in mind that they were to be a light to these other nations. And instead of becoming a light, they were a blight, as it were, to God's righteous cause. Now, when we come down to about verse number 25, well, notice verse number 24. Because the Lord is explaining here what He is going to do, and that is that eventually that there is going to be a cleansing of those people. Eventually there's going to be a transformation of that nation. And because a lot of those folks at that point are, are feeling hopeless, that God's judgment is upon us, God has forsaken us, maybe even feeling that God has broken His promises to them. And so this is the Lord's way of reassuring them that not only are their needs going to be met by way of of the government and their status among the other nations, but it all gets back to the spiritual side of the issue. And notice what he says. He says in verse 24, And I will take you from among the heathen, and gather you out of all countries, and will bring you into your own land. Then, then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all of your filthiness, and from all of your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart uh, and heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. Now listen very carefully. I will put my spirit within you, God says, and understand that when we're born again, the thing that gives us life is the spirit of God dwelling within us. He quickens us and imparts life. So the Lord says to them, I'm going to put my spirit within you. But notice these next few words. And cause you to walk in my statutes 
and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Now, I want you to notice something about the wording of this. I had not intended to even make reference to these verses originally and this afternoon, shortly after we got home and I started thinking about the message for tonight. In some way or another, I I happened upon this verse. I, I can't remember the last time, how many years it's been since I even read these verses, but a long time. And I, I, I got to noticing the, the exact wording of it. He says, I'll put my spirit within you, referring to their spiritual salvation, of course, and cause you to walk in my statutes. Notice he's not making a request that I, he's not saying, and I demand you or command you or insist that you walk in my statutes, although that is true. That was, that's his expressed will for them and for us. But notice he's simply saying here that as a result of of the uh, of the spiritual cleansing as a result of my spirit being within you there's going to be a change in your life and, and he's pointing out the fact that he is the change agent and that's why you've heard me say so many times second corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 18 where it talks about being changed from glory unto glory as by the spirit of the lord so after we get saved it's not you know us just through our own sheer determination, changing our life. Naturally, we have to be willing, but willpower is never enough. It takes the working of the Lord in our life in order for us to change. And and so he's letting them know, I'm going to cause you to change. Now, what I want you to understand is this is just another one of the many verses of Scripture that that lets us know that God does not want us to remain the same as what we were before our conversion. I, I like that old-timey word, conversion, don't you? Uh, you know, used to years ago, whenever I was holding a meeting or something, and somebody wanted to know, well, how'd the revival go? And they said, well, you know, we got we had five new converts. We don't use that word anymore, but the great thing about that word is that it implies that whenever a person gets saved, they begin to change. And by the way, that's what the Bible says. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. And so... Let me tell you right now, if there is no change in a person's life, now please understand, we're not saved by changing our life. It's not based on our behavior, it's based on our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not saved as a result of us changing our life, but rather it's the fact that when we are saved, God begins to do a work in our heart and in our life that changes us. It's one thing to talk about the fact that you know, that we love the Lord or that we have great faith in the Lord. But if that faith is real, then it's going to be demonstrated in some way or another. James makes that perfectly clear. If a man, you know, says that he has faith and there are no works, he said his faith is dead, being alone. It's worthless. It's not real. It's not the genuine article. And so a lot of times people that profess to be saved give clear evidence that they've never really been saved. But 
The fact of the matter is, since none of us are perfect, even those who love the Lord with all of their heart, those who have great faith in the Lord, those that are determined to do His will, there are times in their life they will occasionally fail. There are times that they're going to sin, that they'll act out of character, that they'll do something contrary to the will of God. And that can and does happen to all of us to some extent. Now, we'd like to minimize those occasions, right? I mean, we don't want to send any more than what, you know, than, than the, what, what is, I start to say what's necessary. It's never really necessary, but we know we're going to fail to some extent. But the difference is, in fact, John, whenever he's talking about the fact over there in First John chapter number 3, that those that are saved, he, he uses a phrase, he says, they sin not. You know, you read that, and if, you're, you, if you don't really pay attention, you get to thinking, well, that can't be, because that would be sinless perfection. But yet, that's what it says, that we sin not. But if you look at the tense, the, you know, the tense of the words themselves, it's speaking about in the habitual sense of the word. In other words, certainly we might commit any sin, but we don't habitually practice that sin after we've been saved because there's a change that's made. Now, here's the problem. In spite of all of our good intentions, you and I fail at times, and that means that we need divine intervention. We need to, for God to get involved in this whole business of us trying to live for the Lord, and that's exactly what we see. And the question is, what is God's response to man's rebellion during those times that we do fail? How does God respond to that? Uh, what does He do in order to get us back on track, as we might say? Well, certainly God is not going to just ignore the matter. He cares too much about us to do that. You know, he doesn't just shrug his shoulders and say, well, you know, everybody fails now and then. It's not that big of a deal. I, You know, I don't want to be too hard on them. You see, God is at work in our life. And I mentioned this at the very beginning, Romans eight twenty nine. God's purpose is to transform you and I, that we might be conformed to the image of his Son. That's God's plan for every Christian here. So mark it down, God is not going to just ignore the matter of sin in our life. God expects obedience. He expects obedience in absolutely every area of our life. Sometimes we break our arm patting ourselves on the back because we are obedient in certain areas of life. Let's say we're faithful in church attendance. Boy, we never miss that. We never, ever miss giving the tithe. We, you know, we do all of those things because we know that's what we're supposed to do. That's what God requires of us. But we may be failing in some horrendous way in some other area of our life. And mark it down, it makes no difference what area of our life we're talking about. God is concerned about obedience in regards to everything. And so God is going to get involved, and one of the ways in which God involves himself, well, you guessed it, didn't you? It's through pain. God uses pain in regards to our obedience in two different ways. 
And uh, in the first place, he uses it in order to purge sin. This is after we have already committed the sin. We've already fallen. We failed in some way. And so God gets involved. Turn over to Psalms 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. And we're just going to jump around here a little while. We're not going to camp out anywhere. But I just want you to notice... uh, the testimony of the psalmist in regards to this matter. Look at verse 67 and then verse 71. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now have I kept thy word. In other words, something has happened that caused God to afflict him. This is in the past now. And he says, now, after the fact, I've kept thy word. He went astray, but now he kept the word. Verse number 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted. Why? Well, he explains that I might learn thy statutes. It's good for me that I have been afflicted. If we can learn to see God's hand in all of the affairs of our life, if we can learn to realize that God takes an active part in our sanctification, that is, in the making us what He desires us to be, the cleansing of our life. Uh, it'll help us to have a more acceptant attitude of pain. Whenever we know, you know, who wants, you know, who wants to suffer for no good reason? You know, there there are times in your life that you've had to suffer, but it was for a really good reason. In other other words, it might be that you went to the dentist and you had to suffer for five minutes there in the dentist chair, you know, in order to get rid of a tooth that had been uh, keeping you in agony for weeks. So you had to suffer a little bit to get through it and over it and past it, but it was worth it. And, And let me tell you, God is the great physician, and he knows exactly what we need and when we need it. And whenever sin creeps into our life, God goes into action. Now turn to Hebrews chapter number 12, and I'm certain that nearly everybody here is very familiar with these verses. If you're not, you certainly should be. Chapter number 12 of Hebrews, verse number 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. In other words, there's no exceptions. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons, For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards illegitimate, and not sons. Verse 9, Furthermore, we have had our fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, 
No chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now remember, sin is the transgression of the law. In other words, it is a violation of God's righteous standards. It's disobedience to God's commands. And so consequently, whenever we violate God's standard, then God is going to leap into action in order to correct us. So many times we think about chastisement as God being angry. And, and you know, most of us that are parents, I'm certain that if we would really be honest, we would probably have to say that there have been times that we, uh, that we disciplined our kids more out of anger than anything else. In other words, what we did when we gave them a spanking, it wasn't so much for correcting them, it was to vent our anger and our frustration. Am I right? I'm, I've had to apologize to some of my kids in the past. God doesn't lose his temper. Now, God there, God gets angry. God hates sin. And we can provoke God, as it were, to anger, but it's not out of a heart of anger that God imposes discipline upon us. It's out of the depths of his great love for us. He loves us too much to ignore these sins in our life. He knows that the sin is going to damage our fellowship with Him. There can't be any sweet communion with the Lord whenever there's sin in our life. It's going to hinder us from glorifying God, which is our main purpose on earth. And that was one of the things that he uh, mentioned in regards to ancient Israel. He said, you know, he said, I... Uh, I punished you as a result of the sins that you committed and dispersed you among the other nations. And so I've got you scattered out there among the heathen. And instead of that correcting you, you turn around and bring reproach upon my name in the presence of the heathen. In, in other words, it's kind of like God saying, regardless of what I do to you, you don't learn your lesson. You just keep bringing shame upon my name. Our, look. Our purpose in life is to glorify God. That's the purpose for which we were created, the purpose for, uh, for which He saved us. That is our purpose, period, to glorify God. But we can't do that if we're entertaining sin in our life. And God knows that. God cares too much to say, oh, well. God takes an active part in correcting us so that we can glorify Him, so that we can have communion with Him. And, and, and I'm not going to hesitate a second to say also, I think, so we can enjoy Him. You, you ever think about that? That God wants us to enjoy Him? Some people got the idea, you know, that Christianity is a religion that's to be endured. But that's not it at all. It's the greatest joy in all of the world to live our life in fellowship with the Lord. And so as a result of that, he says here very clearly that every son, every son, every child of God, when they're disobedient, 
is going to be chastised. Warren Wiersbe said years ago, he said, God's not a permissive parent who allows his children to do as they please. That's well said. He doesn't, like Spurgeon said, God never permits his children to sin successfully. We might sin and hide it from somebody else, but God knows. And verse 6 says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son he receiveth. That word chasteneth means to train or to, to instruct. And the point is that because God loves us, God then permits troubles to come into our life, things such as pain, in order to correct us from sin. And notice verse number 10, because I, I mentioned we shouldn't be thinking about this like a punishment of an angry God. He says, notice, for our profit, it's for our profit. What did the psalmist say? It is good for me to be afflicted. It was profitable. And he says, it's for our profit that we might be, notice, partakers of his holiness. You, you know, the, the problem is that we tend to hunt for happiness. We're looking for things to make us happy, and, and you can't ever find it. Amen. You never will. You will waste your life away looking for happiness. It's not to be found, but rather happiness comes as the result. And the result is from our relationship with the Lord. And that's why uh, sometimes I'll say God's more interested and concerned about your holiness than He is about your happiness. Somebody says, well, doesn't God want me to be happy? Yeah, He does. God wants you to be happy, but He wants you to find your happiness in Him, not in things. And that's the only place you're going to find real, true happiness. So when, when trials come, whenever pain enters into our life, we're suffering in some way or another, we ought to automatically examine ourselves. Now, I understand that we already talked about the fact that all pain, all suffering is not the result of sin in our life. So we can't just look at somebody that's going through a lot of trouble and automatically conclude, well, you know, like Job's friend, well, there must be some hidden sin there. We don't know that. But the fact of the matter is, it might be that some sin has brought this pain into our life. And we don't want to just rule that out. And believe me, there are people that do that. There are people that presume, oh, well, everybody goes through what I'm going through. That's just a part of life. You know, they reason, well... It couldn't possibly be that I have a horrible temper. It couldn't possibly be that I've been uh, tipping into the till at work and stealing money. It couldn't possibly be that I lied on my income tax. It couldn't possibly be that I treat other people like trash. Uh, well, yeah, it could. So the first thing that we need to do whenever we're when we're going through these difficult times, is ask God to show us the purpose of our problem. You, Lord, is there some sin in our life that, that, that you're seeking to correct? What's, what's that, that old song that I used to, in, in fact, uh, every revival meeting, I used to sit there and the last thing I did before I got up to preach was sit there and, uh, 
and go over the words to that song I carried in my Bible. Search me, O God, and know my thoughts, I pray. You know, that look, that's what we need, a good searching of our hearts. We need the Holy Spirit. Uh, I like the way the old-timers used to talk about the Spirit of God and in reference to the finger of God, they called it. God putting His finger on our heart. And, and, and that list, we need that. And we shouldn't for one second hesitate to stop and ask, Lord, is this experience I'm going through that is hurting me so much, is it because of some sin in my life? And if it is, well, obviously we need to correct it. Amen. God uses pain in order to, uh, in order to correct us whenever we've sinned against him. But there's more to it than that. Turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Not only does God use pain to purge sin, but he also uses pain to prevent sin. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter number 12, we find the Apostle Paul, I believe, writing of himself. He says, I knew a man in Christ, verse 2, about 14 years ago, whether in the body, he said, I cannot tell, or whether out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth such a one caught up to the third heaven. Now, I think there's a good reason that Paul is speaking in this manner rather than saying, I was. And, and that'll become apparent whenever we go through this because God was protecting him against the sin of pride. And this was the means that God used. And so instead of saying, you know, hey, I, I, I've been on a trip to heaven. God took me up to heaven, showed me stuff you, the rest of you have never seen before. That's why he says, I, I knew a man in Christ. About 14 years ago, this happened, you know, caught up into heaven. I don't know if he's in the body or out of the body. Verse 4, notice, caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. But I mean, you know, I think about that, that song about heaven, I can only imagine. And, you know, I read that and, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm just human. I'm like you are. I, I wonder what in the world could that be? Words not lawful for man to utter. Now, God, I'm convinced God's not going to tell me, but I can't help being curious about it. What would that be? But it's not lawful for him to talk about it. Now, whenever something is unlawful, it, it, what? It becomes a transgression of the law if we violate that standard. Am, am I not right? So this, this involved what would have been a sin in his life. It's unlawful for him to talk about it. Now notice he says, verse 5, Of such a one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. Now we get to the painful part of this. For though I would desire to glory, in other words, I'd love to tell you all what I saw, what I heard, what I experienced. I, I, you know, if, if I could, I'd love to boast about that. He says, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. 
And lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in mine infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then am I strong. You see, afflictions can be preventive as well as curative. I said at the beginning, God uses pain sometimes to purge sin out of our life. But here we discover that God also uses pain to prevent sin in our life. And, and here we find it being described as a thorn in the flesh. Something that God designed for the express purpose of keeping him humble and keeping him dependent upon the Lord. Now, I understand that we don't understand. You and I can't begin to even comprehend the things that we are forced to face sometimes, the difficulties that we have to go through. The reason is we can't see ourselves as God sees us. Boy, if we could. We are so blinded sometimes as to ourself, as to our condition. Boy, I mean, we do, we congratulate ourselves when in reality we ought to be condemning ourselves. So we don't understand the pain that we're going through because we, we can't really see what the, the magnitude of the problem is. Sometimes we might think, well, it would be better. I would be better, better person, if it wasn't for this problem. If I didn't have this pain, if I didn't have this suffering, if I didn't have this problem, you know, uh, I could be a better person. And in reality, the opposite is true. Because were it not for that problem, it would absolutely ruin us. Nobody knows that better than God. Because of this, God uses the problem to prevent pride in our life. And that's what's going on here. Boy, how tempting it would be to, to tell everybody about that experience. Write a book about it. Get on TV and let the world know. Well, let me tell you what what I experienced. So God, without any invitation from Paul whatsoever, God does that, you know. He just interrupts our life whether we like it or not. By the way, He has the right to do that. Amen. For it was He who made us and not we ourselves. So God just steps in and says, Paul, uh, I need to take care of some business. And it's going to hurt. 
but it's going to help. And he gave him a thorn in the flesh, whatever it was. We're not going to debate that. And here he is in great pain, not because he did something wrong, but in order to keep him from doing something wrong. You know, precaution is important in, in whatever we do. But it's especially important when it comes to spiritual matters, taking precaution. And uh, so here we see that, that, that Paul, being dealt with by the Lord, now has to take precaution as to how he deals with what God's doing in his life. And I hope I'm making sense because... You know, sometimes we read the Bible and we read here in Romans 8.28 and it says, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and the called according to our purpose. And we read over here in chapter 12 where we just read where he said he rejoiced in all of his afflictions and takes pleasure in his infirmities. And so we know, you know, that's what God said. We know that God even promised some good was going to come out of it. But man, at the height of the pain when we're going through the depression or the disappointment or whatever it is that is that is making us so miserable, we're tempted. And sometimes, and sometimes we begin to murmur and complain. It might not be, it not be loud enough for anybody else to hear, but all of a sudden we are complaining about the manner in which God deals with us so we've got we've got to take great pains in how we deal with our painful situation and i read here in this chapter and i think about all of the stuff that paul went through and that's a bad situation folks it really is and i don't read one word about him being bitter do you do you see anything there I don't read anywhere where he's complaining. And I don't see any place here where it talks about him withdrawing in a state of depression or accusing God of being unfair. What, what did he do? He prayed. He prayed. Well, the first time he prayed, now you would think a man like Paul a great servant of the Lord that is being used so mightily of God, that has even had the privilege of being called up into heaven, you'd think all Paul would have to do is just ask one time, right? Boy, God would just jump to it and say, okay, I'm going to give you an answer. But he didn't. So Paul prayed again. See, sometimes once is not enough. Sometimes twice is not enough. But he said, I prayed three times for the Lord to remove this. And now the Lord responds. He doesn't respond by removing the pain, but rather he gives an explanation to Paul. He's wanting Paul to understand that I'm using these, this thorn to transform you. I'm using this pain to protect you. You ever think about pain being a means of being protected? 
You know, God is at work protecting you from what? From yourself. You know, we talk about our enemies so many times, but boy, our biggest enemy is the person we look at in the mirror every day. So God uses pain to purge sin from our life and to and to also prevent sin in our life. Now I want you to turn back to Hebrews in chapter 5. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, I believe it was. As we close our thoughts out on this, I, I, I want you to notice something that relates to what I had been saying. Verse 14, but strong meat. Now remember, we started out talking about the matter of spiritual growth, right? And how that there were those that even whenever the time come for them to have strong meat of the word, they were not able to take it because they were still babes in Christ. And so Paul says here, but strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Let me tell you, a lack of spiritual growth and sin go hand in hand. And sadly, there is a disconnect today, I think, when it comes to distinguishing between good and evil. We're, people really have a hard time doing that. You know, I've said a few times, and I look back 50 years ago when I started preaching and think about, and by the way, things were not perfect back then either. But I look back and I think about the things that we stood for, and I'll guarantee you this church can look back 30-some years ago or whatever, and we can look back and think about what a staunch stand, you know, we took on certain issues and da-da-da, and some way or another, you know, things change over the years. And, and I've often said, you know, were we right back then? I believe we were. But the thing of it is, you know, if we if we were wrong back, because I'm telling you, I preached hard about sin back then, a lot harder than I do now, and i much more emphatic about it. Nobody had to wonder where I stood on any issue whatsoever. And if I was wrong, I owe, I owe an apology to a lot of people. I think the problem is, folks, we live in a day and an age where people, for whatever reason, for people have lost the ability to discern between good and evil. That, that happened to Israel. The Lord talked about that several different times. They, they couldn't tell good from evil. And that's where we're at today. Uh, that's why I said we need to, we need to pray and ask God to reveal to us what's wrong and what's right. Because a lot of times we read the Bible, and let me tell you, the Bible doesn't answer every question, does it? Thou shalt 
do this or thou shalt not do that doesn't answer every question. But it gives principles related to every question that would ever arise. There's some part of the Bible that applies to that. And so we look in the Bible and we find that, but there are those issues that we sometimes call the gray areas of life. Now that's our term, not God's term, understand. They're gray areas usually because we just don't want to stand for what's right and, uh, and so we try to skirt the issues and consequently, consequently we got all these gray issues. It'd be so easy to settle all of those and to close that gap by just taking a stand for what we know couldn't be wrong. And then we'd know we had it right. So many times people say, well, do you think it's all right to do this? Are you all right to do that? Probably not. If you've got to ask, I, 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 I've almost learned, and I've learned all together because I still do it from time to time, but I've almost learned that if I have to ask Bev, does this shirt look like it needs to be ironed or something? You think I could wear this again today? The answer's no. The fact that I had to ask indicates that it's got some wrinkles, you know. Well, there's just a lot of issues that we could um, that we could settle if we could learn to recognize sin for what it is, and ask God to give us the strength to resist it, and and in those cases where we have failed, that we would repent of it. God's not going to ignore it. You know, I think about God speaking to us sometimes in that small, still voice. And a lot of times that'll get the job done. We know God's dealing with our heart and convicting us about some sin, and we repent of it, and all is well. But there are other times that we don't. That's why I've often talked about that, that book I read many years ago, Don't Waste Your Sorrow. Because a lot of times we fail to respond when God's dealing with us. And what, what does God do? Well, He has His finger on the thermostat and He just turns it up a little bit. He's going to get your attention. If you're a child of God out of the will of God, He's going to get your attention. You might be hurting now, but you're going to hurt a whole lot more later on if you don't repent of that sin that He's dealing with you about. Because God... You know, I've been in some fights when I was a kid where we quit fighting just because we got tired, you know, and both decided to quit. Too tired to fight anymore. Let me tell you, God doesn't get tired and God doesn't give up. And whenever, listen, whenever He begins dealing with us about some issue in our life, He's gonna, He's gonna stay the course. He's going to finish the task one way or another. But we could avoid so much trouble in our life if we would just learn to discern between what is right and what is wrong and we would set the sails of our life, you know, so that we would sail a course that would, you know, keep us in in purity and righteousness and, and we could avoid a lot of heartache. 
But even when we do the best we can, as I said at the very beginning, we do the very best we can, there are going to be times that we're going to spiritually stump our toe and we're going to, we're going to fail. And uh, whenever that happens and God begins dealing with us painfully so in order to restore us, don't get angry with God. Don't get bitter at life. Don't feel like that, you know, that you've been treated unfairly. God is trying to do something in your life. You know, it'd be easy for us if all of a sudden, I mean, just some great blessing come in our life that just swept us off of our feet. Man, I've never had a gift like this in all my life. God sure is good. God's just as good when you're hurting as He is when you're laughing and enjoying life. God. God's good all of the time. And He uses whatever means is necessary in order to continue on with that conforming process of making us like His dear Son. Well, there's more to be said about pain. This is not all of it. There are some other factors that enter into it. And Lord willing, we're going to, we're going to look at another piece of the puzzle next week but i hope tonight that that maybe something's been said to make you think a bit differently about about the pain that you have to suffer it's not all bad it hurts but it's not all bad god will use it for good let's all stand together father how we thank you tonight for the privilege to be able to serve you the privilege to know that we can bring all of our needs before your throne of grace Lord, we just pray tonight that you'll be with your people, that you'll speak to our hearts, that you'll strengthen us while we're weak, and that you'll bring great comfort to those that are going through trying times. Lord, help us tonight to be ever mindful that you're constantly in control and not as some, not as some wicked dictator in our life, but rather as a loving Heavenly Father looking out for our best interests. And so may you give them a special peace and comfort tonight. And Lord, especially for that person that's here that's never received Christ as their Savior, Lord, help them tonight to see their need and to repent of their sin and to, and to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. And Lord, I just pray that they'll not leave here tonight without knowing beyond any shadow of a doubt that they'd go to heaven if they died. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.